get going. Much work to be done. So little time to do it in Miles. Wish we could be here till midnight. Grab a seat. You guys enjoy the barbecue tonight. Any fans of that? Now, uh, if you know me, you know this. Uh, we love food and we love uh, warm weather. So literally, uh, starting now, like once a month, we're just going to be partying out in the back parking lot. So if you were with us last year, we did like snow cones and ice cream and all kinds of stuff. So um, normally I don't start out this way, which means we're going to have some fun this evening. Uh, a little moment of interaction. I'm going to ask a question. You shall respond. It shall be interesting. The question is this. When you were a kid, let's say 3 to 10, maybe 11, some grace on the top in there, what did you collect? What was your hobby collecting? What did you... Okay, I, I, need, I need some hands. I need some hands. Yeah. Beanie Babies. How many Beanie Baby collectors here? My sister collected Beanie Babies. I heard of Pokemon cards. Are you serious? Dude, there's like scriptures straight against you guys. Uh, what, else, what else we got? Yeah. Hot Wheels. Any other Hot Wheel collectors? Yeah, dude. What's that? Care Bears? Pogs? Okay. I don't know what those are. I don't know what those are. One, one more. Anyone? How, about, how about someone who's a 30 plus here? How about from the 30-plus crowd? Yeah, what'd you collect, bro? Comic books. That's old school right there, yeah. Well, uh, as for me in my house, uh, I, I collected uh, baseball cards. And, uh, and listen, it's so amazing how uh, your personality, like, starts out at such a young age. Um, some of you guys know this. If you don't, welcome. I'm Mark. And uh, I have a, a very obsessive personality. Anything I love, I really like it. Um, many of you guys know I, I'm obsessed with Puma. Uh, in comparison to Nike, Reebok, and those kinds of things, uh, Puma stands uh, much, uh, you know, much higher than any of those. The rest are imitators. I own 17 pairs of Puma tennis shoes. Um, seems a little bit excessive. I actually, actually didn't buy a one of them. They're all gifts. Uh, I take, uh, many of you guys know, four to five, sometimes eight showers a day. I'm just, I have an obsessive personality. And uh, this started at a young age with baseball card collecting. What I would do is I would take a top-rated rookie who was coming out. And I would uh, make it my mission to get every possible card of that particular rookie in the hopes, in the prayer, in the opportunity that maybe they would make it big and I would become a millionaire. And... Uh, and so I want to talk about one particular player. Uh, this is him. Uh, Jody Reed was his name. Um, you got to like the stash there. That, I, think we, I think we need to bring that back. Um, <laughs> uh, I made it my, uh, my mission to collect Jody Reed baseball cards when I was seven and eight years old. Uh, now, I'm um, unlike um, most of you uh, who are um, village idiots, I'm a Cubs fan. And um, I know uh, we have any, uh, any other Cubs fans here, just so we can, okay, there we go. The few, the proud, the Marines. Here, hey, bro, what's your name? Ben. Here's the thing, dude. They can never call us fair weather fans, you know? I mean, once you win, like, how many championships have the Cardinals won? Like, once you win that many, all you guys are just fair weather fans. Us, we're hanging in there, dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're suffering, you know? And we're still fans. Anyway, I would trade Sean Dunstan, Andre Dawson, Ryan Sandberg cards 
to get Jody Reed cards. Now, a, a, a rated rookie card for Andre Dawson was, a, was worth at least like three bucks, okay? These cards would be worth three cents, but I would, I would still like trade anything. I mean, I'd be, I would be throwing in like dollar bills. I would be taking clothing off and it's like, give me Jody Reed cards. I mean, I just, I want, and literally this day, you go to my mom's attic, I have a whole thing that's filled with Jody Reed cards. Now, problem is no, like none of you have ever heard of him because he didn't amount to anything. He was horrible, Okay. <laughs> He was worthless. He was a second a baseman, a shortstop, played like five games. I mean, he was just horrible. But I'd, I'd wasted all this money, would trade all of these uh, worthless things for this. Um, many of you guys know I have a minivan. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I busticated my van. Um, no one told me that you have to, like, change the oil and the fluids in these things. Again, I, I'm not an automobile mechanic, Geyser, but I... No one ever said, like, hey, you should take care of these things. So eventually I blew a head gasket. Don't even know what that is. It's something in your engine that makes it not work anymore. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and um, so anyway, I had a problem on my hands. I had a blown head gasket and, uh, and a great van. So I was uh, talking to a good friend uh, who's here tonight who has a much a better car than I. And, uh, and I was just joking with him. I was like, dude. I'm like, dude, I, I got the deal of the century, bro, for you. Straight up, like, I'll trade you this hog straight up. You know what I'm saying? You give me your really nice car, it's probably worth, I don't know, six, seven times, and I'll just give you the minivan. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll just, we'll call this deal good, right? Well, obviously, he would be incredibly ludicrous to even consider it. So I just sold the van on Craigslist and then bought another van on Craigslist. You know what I'm saying? Any, fan, any Craigslist fans here? I'm, I'm really not sure what I would do without Craigslist. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of work done in my house in the last week and all of the guys I found on Craigslist, you know. There's no way my buddy would have taken the deal. There's no way he would have said, yeah, dude, give me your broken minivan for my XYZ awesome car. Um, there's no way he would, like, trade something that's worth so much for something that's so little. It's so intriguing, then, why, why we are willing so quickly, hurriedly, expediently, even, to trade things that have great worth for things that don't have any value. Now, if you came here tonight wanting kind of lighthearted Oprah talk, I'm sorry you came to the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, tonight, a heavy uh, text, a heavy passage that really, uh, at least for me, is going to expose the innermost pieces of who we are. And uh, I think we have a lot of work to do as it pertains to trading. And so I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're just joining us tonight, welcome. We study the Bible verse by verse, and uh, currently our book is Hebrews. Tonight we'll study all of two verses, which means we should be uh, done with Hebrews by Christmas time, and uh, only two chapters to go, or two verses, uh, two chapters, yeah. So we're going to start where we uh, studied last week, uh, chapter 12, verse 12 through 15, and then we'll pick up verse 16 and 17, what we'll be wrestling with tonight. When you're there, say, I'm there. There we go, the inflection on the, I'm there. Verse 12, here we go. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Don't sulk in the corner. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Remember, last week we focused on the straight path is, is much more difficult. It's easier to kind of wind around and let the roads take you as they may, but it's, it's way better to take the straight path. Strive, verse 14, for peace with everyone. Big issue for us. We're haters often and rather uh, instead of peacemakers. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it uh, may, uh, many become defiled. I mentioned to you last week, if you're not a peacemaker, you're a troublemaker. If you're not pursuing peace, then you're actually causing trouble. Many of you in here are uh, perpetual troublemakers. It's, it's a burdensome uh, that we are riddled in our culture and even in this community with so many uh, troublemakers, gossipers. Verse 16, the verses we're going to pick up tonight. That no one is sexually immoral. Some of you have been longing to hear the word sex in here. Here we go. Sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. A lot of work to do here. Let's begin in verse 16 and define some terms. That no one of you is sexually immoral. Well, uh, we'll talk about why sex is in this verse. Tonight isn't going to be uh, dominated by sex. Rather, uh, Esau and his story. The word immoral here, uh, is the, the Greek word is pornos, interestingly enough. huh? Uh, and the word pornos means fornicator. It means someone who takes the ideal of biblical sexuality and uh, fragments it, distorts it. And, uh, and this is certainly what the Bible is saying Esau has done. Also, uh, it calls uh, uh, Esau unholy. The Greek word here is better godless. So Esau must be quite an exemplary character. He's called both a, a fornicator and a godless man. All right? And then it says uh, what makes him that, at least partly, is he sold his birth, birthright for a single meal. This is an interesting moment in the Scripture. Uh, some of you may know this story. Others of you may not. So to gather all of us around, let's turn to Genesis 25 here on the screen to look at this story. Jacob and Esau are brothers. They're twins. Any twins in the room? Okay, okay. we got a couple right there sitting by each other. So perfect. Actually, they're not. There's a person in between them there. Um, are all you guys twins though in that row? Okay, you're a twin too. Praise God. Awesome. And uh, Jacob and Esau are twins. Jacob is kind of a mama's boy. He's a cook. Loves to be in with his mom. Esau, on the other hand, is a hairy man. Some of you, uh, I know, struggle with uh, hair in weird places. That was Esau. Uh, he had a blanket of back hair, I'm sure. And uh, he came out first. He was the firstborn. Jacob was holding his heel, the Bible says, as they came out of the womb. So Esau is the firstborn. So these brothers uh, come into a little bit of a conundrum here in Genesis 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew... <laughs> So nice of you. Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. Straight up, how many of you guys have ever farmed a field before? Okay. Are there really a couple females there? Tell me about it. Where, where have you farmed? What have you farmed? Corn. Okay, fair enough. That's good. That's a very farmable product, right? <laughs> um, I'm impressed that a female is doing, doing the like. That's very good. Um, you know uh, that, that it's exhausting. Unless you're sitting in a combine with air conditioning all day. Anyway, uh, Esau comes in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. This sounds somewhat nasty. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but just something just red. I, I don't like tomato juice in general. So this, I don't know. This isn't enticing to me, but it was to him. He was exhausted, hungry. Therefore, at the end of their, uh, verse 30, his name was called Edom, which the root there is red. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell, uh, your, sell me your birthright now. Now, this is uh, getting very interesting. Esau comes in. He's exhausted. He's hungry. Uh, Jacob sees an opportune moment to get his birthright. Well, in Jewish culture, the birthright is a precious gift. It's your cherished reality as the firstborn, that you will receive an inheritance, that you will receive a blessing. The firstborn had great privilege. 
And so Jacob says, yeah, 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 if you're so hungry, then here, sell me your birthright. No big deal, right? Kind of like tries to slide it under. Verse 32, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Seriously, no, you're not. Have you ever been so hungry, though, you feel like you're going to die? Like, have you ever gone so long? On Wednesdays, I don't eat. I eat at 11 o'clock in the morning. I don't eat again until midnight. And like, there's sometimes like mid-sermon, I'm like, man, just a tombstone pizza would be really nice <laughs> right about now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. What? Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. For a bowl of red lintel, I'm not sure if that sounds enticing to you, it certainly doesn't to me, he sells his birthright for lentil stew. Now, there's something remarkable that happens in this. As I look at this, study this, and I've been gazing at it, there's a process, a deep rhythm that we see in these passages. I want to, is everyone okay back there? Is everyone okay? Okay, good. A deep process that's revealed in this. And so I want to I expose this to you. Um, many of you guys know I play football. What we would do in high school and college is, is uh, the week before a game, we would study the other team's tapes. Have you guys heard about this or done that? And the point is, like, the more that we can learn the strategy of the other team, then the better we will play. Well, in this case, the more we can understand the strategy, the enticing nature of sin, maybe the deeper impact or the better proactive we can be against it. So let's just look at this uh, passage and break it down. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. The first piece of Esau's reality here in his process of indulging in sin is next slide. He has a certain state. His state is he's exhausted. All of you guys came in here in a particular emotional, physical, spiritual state. Some of you are burdened, bless you. Some of you are encouraged. Some of you are overjoyed. Some of you are bogged down by financial chaos. Some of you guys have tremendous relational tension right now. All of you entered this room in a particular state. In this moment, Esau was exhausted. Now in verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. The next strategy or the piece of this that we see is he has a need that is based on his state. He is exhausted and his need to meet that state is food. And it's dominating him. It's all I can think about. He walks in, he smells it probably from the field because Jacob was a great cook. So he can like smell the wafting lentil nastiness. Verse 31, <laughs> Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now he has to weigh the cost. He has a state. That state is developed into a need. And now he has to weigh the cost. The cost is... Bowl of lentil soup, his precious birthright. That's what he's weighing. No one in their right mind would choose the lentil soup, and that's the point. How quickly the enticing nature of sin confuses all reality. How quickly we would chomp on something that seems so ludicrous all because all that we are is being dominated by the need of our state. That's what we see here in verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. No, no you're not. The, the indulging nature of sin causes you to completely deceive reality. 
I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So now he's evaluating the cost. Dude, hey, look, I'm so, what, what use is the birthright to me? What use? Are you kidding me? Dude, that is your blessed privilege as a, fir, uh, as a firstborn. You cannot sell that or let that go. There's a cost. He's evaluating it. Seems to be moving quite quickly through this process. Jacob said, uh, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. We have to take a minute and just say, Jacob's like pretty savvy here, isn't he? You know what I'm saying? I don't know how one goes from like, come in and eat soup to sell me your birthright, but there's a little bit of pretty you know, darn good strategy here. Uh, eventually Esau has to respond to the cost. He's weighed the cost, he's evaluated the cost, and now he's like, all right, I swear to you. Here, here's my birthright. I'm so hungry. Then uh, this verse ends. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The end uh, is the fruition of sin. He works through this entire process. Ludicrous, we'd all agree. And then he sins. Goes against, deceives. Gives something up that has tremendous worth for something that's worthless. Now, uh, it's one thing to look at this story. It's another thing to look at some others. I've chosen three uh, major sins in the Bible to evaluate and show you the exact same process. Do you mind if I go through these? Not that you have a choice. Let's begin uh, here with uh, Judas. Many of you guys have heard of him. You probably won't name your son after him. Uh, He's a man that doesn't have a great reputation in the Scripture, uh, many uh, of which because he betrayed the Christ. My contention to you will be that he went through the exact same process that Esau did. His state is this, uh, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, is he begins to get vulnerable. One of the Gospels mentions that Satan is, is really enticing him, maybe even controlling him at this point. He begins to doubt, I'm sure, the reality of Jesus. Man, this Jesus guy has been nice and it's been great to be around him, but I'm starting to wonder if he's really the Christ. That's his state. Okay? Uh, his need based on his state is, uh, next slide, he needs to feel valued. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's gotten jealous a little bit of Peter. Man, that Peter, Jesus sure does love him. I'm over here in the painting of the Last Supper, you know, one of the last dudes off to the side. I don't feel quite valued anymore. And there's a sense of financial gain he wants to, he wants to meet. So he, uh, he evaluates the cost, and, and the cost is this, betrayal. Here's what Judas is wrestling with. Betray Jesus or 30 pieces of silver? No one in their right mind would say, this is a great idea. 30 pieces of silver, that's, that's strong. Go for that, betray the Christ, it'll all be good. How crazy enticing is sin that it causes you to distort all reality. So the cost, it seems overwhelming, but he begins to evaluate the cost and uh, next slide. He asks the chief priest, so what do you give me? Here's my situation. I betray, uh, give you the Christ. How much are you going to give me? Chief priests, elders, the people in Jerusalem that are trying to kill Christ, they come back and they're like 30 pieces of silver. So then uh, his response to the cost is this. The scripture says he seeks an opportunity to betray Jesus. He's like, 30 pieces of silver, that sounds good to me. And again, you have to think, he's moving through this process pretty quickly. Maybe, maybe like you. This process moves pretty quick sometimes, doesn't it? Like so quick, you go from a state to the fruition of sin and breeze right through all of these things. 
The fruition of his sin is uh, he walks in with a mob with swords and clubs and ironically enough kisses Jesus and hands him over. The cost of the fruition of his sin is suicide. Next slide. He kills himself, burdened with what he had done, takes his own life. Pretty lighthearted story, right? I don't think many of us understand the sinfulness of sin. We treat it pretty flippantly. We treat it kind of like it's a game to play. David did the same thing in our next example. Uh, David in 2 Samuel 11, the scripture says he wakes up from a nap. Let's talk naps for a moment. Um, how many of you guys are just, you're really, you really enjoy a good nap? You guys? Okay. Many of you guys? Now, if you're a good napper, and there are good nappers here. Some of you are horrible nappers. You don't succeed at it. Others of you deserve an award, right? Like you just, you can fall asleep. Uh, my friends used to say I had narcolepsy and a little, uh, I just, because I'm like always going like Jojo the Idiot Circus Boy, that when I do finally sit down, I mean, I can fall asleep right now. I could just, right? And uh, anyway, you'll know if you're a good napper that a 20-minute nap feels awesome. You fall asleep for four hours, it's like you wake up from the dead. You know what I'm saying? If you fall asleep from like one in the afternoon to five, you wake up, you're seeing giraffes and zombies. Like you don't even know where you're at. Am I in the world anymore? I'm not sure. And um, reality seems to kind of disconnect itself from you. Now in the scripture talking about David, it says that it's in the afternoon, the scripture says it happened. It says he got up from his couch. I kind of picture David waking up from too long of a nap. His reality is a bit distorted. And he ganders across the way and notices a beautiful woman. Now, uh, let me speak to the guys here for a moment. Uh, Once or 50 times in your life, guys, um, this may have been your story, right? Uh, It's so interesting to me, like, I think when we start talking to guys and and the the opportunity to sin sexually uh, because of a beautiful woman of some kind, you know, we're, we're quick to say, oh, I, dude, I don't, I don't show it. Uh, yeah, yeah, are you a guy? Like that? Are you male? Okay. Th- this is our reality. This is our struggle. Uh, that's why I would like to say a quick encouragement to the sisters in the room. Uh, do us all a favor and dress appropriately. Uh, it would really do uh, us guys here a great uh, favor, uh, especially as the weather, as you have to start taking off your parka because the weather is warming up. Uh, we would much appreciate it if underneath the parka was a fully clothed woman, okay? Uh, that will help us men in here. Men, can I get an amen? amen? Some of you guys say that skittishly. You're like, no, I like the half nudity. No, please don't. Please don't tell him to do that, Mark. Then it w- might happen. Yeah, w- we're going to see the fruit of that. So he, uh, his state is this. He wakes up from his nap, tired, sees a beautiful woman. This is not a good start. Many of you guys know, uh, for those that really struggle deeply with sexual sin, exhaustion, being tired is one of the quickest ways into a quick sexual sin. Your guard is down, your defenses are down, you find yourself quickly uh, able to fail. He uh, is tired, sees a beautiful woman. His need based, uh, based upon that state is pleasure. It's all he's really thinking about. A little groggy from the nap still, sees a beautiful woman, thinks to himself, I'm a pretty powerful man. She's a pretty beautiful woman. One plus one equals two. The cost is this, adultery. So uh, David, great man of God, biblically called a man after God's own heart. Listen to what he's weighing. He's weighing adultery or not. The sinfulness of sin, the heaviness of it. 
That's what he's weighing. Nothing trite, nothing insignificant. Uh, the cost evaluation leads him to this. He inquires about her. He's like, okay, maybe I'll send, a, I'll send some friends over there, see what happens. And news returns that she's married. Okay? So he's evaluating the cost, thinking to himself, man, she's beautiful. Then news comes back. Uh, hey, yeah, she's Uriah the Hittite. Like, they're, they're married, man. Uh, that doesn't seem to phase David. The response to his cost is, uh, he sends messengers to get her. Okay? He's like, yeah, that whole married thing, we could just look. Uh, come on, I'm King David, man. Just why don't you guys go get her? We'll figure this We'll figure this thing out right here. Um, well, the, the fruition of his sin is this. He, uh, the scripture says, and I quote, he lays with her and she gets pregnant. Uh, for those of you that understand anything about uh, sexuality, uh, when you're married to someone and you get pregnant with someone else's kid, we have an eye problema for the, uh, those of you that are bilingual here. Okay? This is a problem. This is not good. And this is what David's sin produces. I know many of you who are burdened, uh, male and female, with sexual sin. You think, no one will find out. No big deal. I can hide this all my life. Yeah, problem is truth is buoyant. It floats. Uh, and, it, and if you think, for some reason, in your um, very thick skull, that God is not seeing you and with you at every moment of the day, it's one of the greatest realities of fearing God. Every lust of my heart, God sees it. Every desire that I ever experience it, he sees it. And if you think just because you, you close the door and no one can hear you or see you or watch you, that you're good to go, uh, you're forgetting about the one that's holding your judgment in his hand. David seems to forget this for a moment. Uh, he uh, has a bit of a cost to pay as well. Next slide. He has emotional and spiritual angst, which we will study later. His child dies and then he kills someone. Again, pretty lighthearted story, okay? Uh, some people say, and they're treating their sin very uh, insignificantly. There is a pretty good track record in the Bible. If you treat your sin ins insignificantly, the consequences, the repercussions are great, grave even. Uh, let's not stop here. How about one more example? This would be fun. The Israelites. Let's talk about a group of people, okay? Uh, so here's the Israelite story. They see God part the waters. That had to be cool. Uh, they watch God do tremendous things. God pulls them out of slavery, out of Egypt. Okay? Then in Exodus uh, chapter 32, Moses hasn't been back for a while. He's their leader. He hasn't been back to camp for a while. They begin to worry. This Moses dude, I'm not sure where he went, but like, we, need, we, need, we need to take care of this. And so their need is this. They fear that Moses is not coming back. Maybe we lost our leader. This is a problem. We need to figure this out. That's their state. Their need, based on their state, is, well, we better build some gods then. <laughs> you know, because that's what you naturally do when your leader goes away. We've watched God uh, part the seas, but you know what? Listen, it's time to take this up in our own hands right now. It's time to build us some gods, okay? So uh, what they do is they weigh the cost, breaking God's law, uh, and also uh, we're going to give some gold to make this big calf or not. No one in their right mind would say, hey, it's a great idea. Uh, give all of your gold. Let's melt it all together. Let's build a big golden calf. I'm sure God will appreciate that. And then we'll all come back, dress the dragon, do the hula. Like, no, no one, Lion King, anyone? Right. No one, no one would say that, okay? So uh, the cost evaluation, uh, Aaron, their leader, because Moses is gone, says, give me your gold then. You'd think Aaron, a strong spiritual man, would have stepped up and say, this is a bad idea. 
put the gold away, go back to your tents, we're going to figure this out, we're going to wait on Moses. No, hey, give me your gold, this will be fun. Then they respond to the cost, the people bring it. Hey, Aaron said it's okay, we kind of thought it was a good idea. Uh, Finally, the fruition of their sin is this. Uh, They build a golden calf, and uh, the scripture says they worship it even more so. Exodus 32 at the end says that they bring sacrifice to it. Well, the problem is, in the Ten Commandments, which God had given them, uh, it says, do not worship any other god. And here we see, a few chapters later, though hearing the Ten Commandments, God's law very clearly, the people step back and they're like, hey, this golden calf thing, this is going to work out real well. Well, the penalty, the repercussions, the cost uh, after fruition of their sin, God is very angry. If you read Exodus 32 and you want to get a picture of God's wrath for a moment, you, you know, you picture like, oh, God's just up there. He's saying, it's cool. It's like, listen, just go ahead. Yeah, Exodus 32 paints a different picture of his um, angst against sin. He gets very angry. He sends a plague on the people. Moses intercedes on the people's behalf and he spares them. Many of you guys know the story later, uh, because of uh, them not believing the spies, they don't get to enter the promised land, all these people. Four examples. The pattern is clear. Next slide. And, and verse 16 uh, emulates the power of this, that no one is sexually immoral. Here's why he says sex. Sex is one of the quickest, easiest things that we trade for something that has tremendous worth. We're willing to trade primarily in a distorted fashion something that has no value, especially when compared to the person of God, so quickly in our air of having a a distorted reality. That's why he throws sexual immorality, again, in the, the incorrect sense of it. Sex, of course, is beautiful within marriage. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is ludicrous, but next slide. Then why is it that many of you find yourself going through this exact same pattern over and over and over and seeing the fruition of your sin and the repercussions of your sin over and over and over, and yet you find yourself indulging all the same? I uh, got the crazy chance to go to Germany. You guys know where that is? Okay, over in Asia somewhere. And, uh <laughs> When I, was, uh, when I was over there, uh, I was going over there to play on a football all-star team, which was a creative way to say, give us a lot of money and then we'll call you an all-star team. Uh, regardless, I got to play. We were playing the German national team one night. All the guys came together. We were from all over the world, really. It was pretty cool. And they said, hey, we're going to go to the red light district tonight. Well, if you, if you think like that's like a, a nice shopping uh, plaza... Uh, that's where uh, the prostitutes are. That's where strip shows are. Uh, that's where all kinds of sexual morality uh, incurs. And so um, my state at the moment was tense. Got 60 guys. All of them are going. Every coach is going to the red light district in Germany. Well, I'm a believer at this point, following Christ. And I have to start weighing the cost. Well, here's what's interesting about this scenario. Only one person even knew me on the trip, barely. So if I was going to indulge, this would have been the chance, you know? This would have been the opportunity. 
no one, know, no one knows me here. I mean, this is a perfect chance for me just to head down to the red light district. I remember sitting there in my room by myself, weighing the cost. The guys were saying, come on, dude, come on, dude, come on, dude. Let's go. It's time. We got to go. And I'd weighed the cost in my mind and my heart. And I looked at them and I said, I'm not going. Sat in my room by myself in Germany that night. Actually ended up wandering around and found this uh, race car track that didn't put governors on the car. So I raced race cars at like 80 miles per hour. These little like mini cars. It's a miracle I didn't die, honestly. Like it was this backyard mob thing, you know. It's amazing how many chances each of our scenarios tonight had to stop. It didn't have to get to fruition of sin, did it? Listen, David sees the beautiful woman. He doesn't have to inquire, but he does. He could stop. And when he inquires and finds out that, he's, that, that she's married, he could have stopped then too. In fact, my friends, it could have gotten so much to the point where she is looking at him. Beautiful woman. And he knows he can take her. And still at that point, God has been gracious in the process that he could still see the reality of his situation and walk away, but he doesn't. And many of you guys find yourself on this habitual pattern, and I just want to tell you this. God and Scripture confirms it. He's providing so many ways out. That's the beauty of the process. You don't just go like, boom, all of a sudden, like, all right, now I'm a fornicator. You don't just become an alcoholic overnight. You don't become someone that's consuming your flesh overnight. No, there's a process. And there are several moments within it for you to recognize your state, weigh the cost, and turn towards Christ. The problem is you're weighing the cost and making ludicrous decisions just like Esau did. Look at some of the decisions you've made. The things you have traded in the name of your pleasure. That's why I ask you this question. What, my friends, next, next slide, what are you trading for a pleasured present? No consideration for the future. No consideration for five minutes from now. Consideration for right this second. What are you trading? What are you giving up? What relationships are you putting in harm's way? Because all you want is your consumption right now. What ludicrous things are you putting on the line in the name of your own pleasure and desires? When I want to I want to encourage you with this, there are so many opportunities for you to stop. For you to put up your hands and say, "No, no, no. I'm not going to trade another thing. God, you've called me your son, and so I will not indulge." But you're not finding yourself there. You find yourself giving in way too often. Because your reality all becomes this three-second piece of your life. And then the consequences come. The great thing about Christ is there's forgiveness of sin, but it doesn't mean there's no consequence. Ask David. David was forgiven. We'll talk about it later, but there was certain consequence. Amen? Those of you that think you can just kind of run around, make a muck of your life, and that because of the grace of God that Drew's going to like get out scot-free? Yeah, in the end, but not now. Right? So if it's heavy right now, let's uh, give verse 17 a gander, shall we? For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
This is Esau. No chance to repent. Some Greek work is important. The word it, you would think, is insignificant in the Greek. However, it is not. Both its possession and gender is pointing to one connection with the word it. It is only connected with one word. If it was connected to repentance, it would be fairly significant. Esau wanted to repent. But it is not connected to repentance. It is connected to the word blessing. So Esau sought the blessing with tears. Now let me explain what happened. So uh, one day, Jacob uh, dressed up like Esau, which means he put hair all over him. Okay, And he goes in and he tricks his blind father. He says, hey, I'm Esau. Give me your... So, you know, it's time for the blessing, right? Well, that was meant for Esau. But Jacob, again, somewhat clever, dresses up, gets the blessing. Well, right after uh, Esau realizes this, this is what he says in Genesis 27 to his father. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He cried. Any criers here? You like to cry? Some of you guys enjoy crying, right? This is him. He cries. How many girls just want to confess? Like, actually, I, I pretty much cry every day. Any girls here? Okay. We got a few. Fair enough. Fair enough. Any, any guys? Any big criers once a day? Okay. Tony, good to hear. Right? Esau cries, but over what? It certainly wasn't over repentance. Esau cries because he didn't get the blessing. Which brings up a phenomenal conversation. Next slide. There's a difference uh, in verse 17 between this powerful word repentance and something else. Next slide. Judas regretted. He felt bad about it. Definition of regret is this. Next slide. I wish I would not have done that. You guys know exactly what this feels like. You finally get caught, right? Finally catches up with you. And the feeling that's overwhelming your heart is, man, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. It would have been way better. Judas felt that. He committed suicide because of it. The Israelites felt that. God sent a plague on their head, right? Esau knows what that feels like, to regret something. He lost his blessing. He lost his birthright. He lost everything that seemed valuable on the earth. And many of you guys, in light and in lieu of your sin, are spending your entire existence regretting. Over and over and over, all you feel is regret. Man, I sure wish I wouldn't have done that. Problem is, if you stop at regret, my friends, you are stopping well short. And that's why many of you find yourself on a habitual pattern of sin. All you're doing is regretting it. Maybe even shedding a few Esau tears. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I wish I wouldn't have done that because everyone found out and I feel so bad now because the consequences are so great. And it means nothing because all you're doing in your heart is trying to trick God into thinking that you're really sorry. That the genuineness of your heart really means something. Now, check this out. Uh, you guys heard of Abraham Lincoln? Okay. George Washington, maybe? Martin Luther King Jr. Have you heard of these guys? Let's take Martin Luther King. If I stood up here one Wednesday and I went into the I Have a Dream speech, okay? Just went into it, like, boom, just 
there would be a few moments that would be fairly inspiring. You know what I'm saying? You'd be like right on him if I had the voice inflection and everything. But it would get somewhat cliche because it's been said. There's other things that are never cliche, though they've been said many times. Uh, John the Baptist comes in Matthew chapter 3, and he says this little thing, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus in Luke 13, 3, uh, bears the same message in a teaching about repenting or perishing. He says, Repent now, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul uh, and uh, many of the apostles, including Peter in Acts 3 and 4, his message is this, Repent. And I stand before you hundreds of years later with the exact same message, not cliche, still powerful. You want to spend your life regret? Good luck with that. That's not what you're called. Jesus never said, hey, regret, for the kingdom of God is now. He says, repent. And what repentance is, is this, by definition, it's not just I wish I would not have done that. It's I turn away from my sin and I desire to never do it again by turning to God. See, you're over here and you're regret. Oh, I feel so bad. Here's a few tears. Pass me a tissue. But you're not turning away from it. You're perpetually feeling bad about it. When what repentance is, is by the empowerment of God, I'm turning away from this sin because I've weighed the cost and I'm tired of eating poo. I'd rather celebrate the grace of God, turn from my sin, rest in Jesus, and hang here in His grace. Well, the problem is, all of your realities right now, most of you, is just in this perpetual state of regret. Second grade, I was into riding bikes. Any bike riders? BMX? Right. And, uh, guess not. Um, I loved Hardee's back in the day. Uh, the reason is, uh, they used to have these uh, strawberry milkshakes that were like nectar from heaven. Uh, if you've had a, a steak and shake, strawberry milkshake, have you had those? I get no whipped cream and cherry, but just the strawberry lusciousness, I mean, it's, like, it's just amazing. Anywho, uh, my friend and I, when we were in second grade, we would ride our bikes to Hardee's to, to purchase a strawberry shake, 95 cents, still remember. One day my friend said, hey, let's go to the gas station. I said, how for? And he said, well, we just need to go. Okay, cool. So we rode our bikes to the gas station nearby. We walk in, he kind of takes me over the corner. Uh, he, says, uh, he says, hey, uh, hey, Mark, you see that bazooka gum? You guys remember bazooka gum? Come on, dude. A little cartoon. It was like three cents. It was amazing, like a bargain, right? This bargain gum just melts in your mouth. He says, hey, uh, why don't you take one of those? Now, um, I wasn't a criminal today. Uh, I was only in second grade. Um, but I remember going through this process fairly quickly in my mind, weighing the cost. Three cents, pretty harmless. I mean, compared to Judas, <laughs> right? And uh, so I meandered over there, kind of timed, you know, when the clerk was looking down, grabbed a piece of gum, put it in my pocket, and well on my way, feeling quite hardcore, if you will, you know? <laughs> Remember the first time you were a criminal, right? Some of you, yeah, like, you're like, actually, I, I, that's who I am, right? <laughs> Something about it, just for a second, that's fairly hardcore. So I got home, and um, the moment I saw my mom, I couldn't live with myself. You know that feeling? When, like, just being around your mom is, like, convicting, you know? <laughs> and seriously, some of you guys who have uh, come home drunk before or come home, you know, after having sex with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and your mom's, like, sitting in the living room 
Or some of you have your mom here with you now, and I'm talking about sex, and it's just awkward. All, you know, they're just like... <laughs> It's like watching a romantic comedy, you know, when your parents are sitting there like, this is weird, I don't know. I don't do this, Mom, you know. So I remember just not being able to live with myself, feeling horrible. And so I took the piece of gum, and I remember, like, putting it up before and just, like, holding it there. She's like, no thanks, you know, I'm, got, you know, big red, I don't need bazooka. And uh, I said, I said, no, I'm, I stole this. And uh, now I was, I mean, I was raised properly. My parents loved me a lot. My mom said, excuse me? I said, mom, I stole this. I'm so sorry. I know it was wrong. I feel horrible. I can't live with myself. Something effect. And if you uh, had parents like mine, you know what your parents would have done at this moment. We hopped in the car, right? Go back down to the gas station. She takes me inside, doesn't say a word, kind of gives me a little. So I, I sit up there to the cash, you know, cashier, and I, I just hold it just like this. I remember this, like, such a monumental moment. He's like, so, like wait, can I help you, sir? I said, yeah, I stole this. You know, I, t- I took this from you. I'm so sorry. I remember feeling so incredibly distraught in me. Like I... I couldn't live with the sin on my heart. Oh, to have that second grade desire again. To hate sin so much that even what you would consider the measly stuff, the three second, three cent, measly little sins, that it would vex you, it would cause such an angst in you so much, such a burden in you you would have the gumption and the wherewithal to say, God, here I am in all my shame saying, please cleanse me. Wash me white as snow. Take away this iniquity from me. I want to turn from this. I don't want to taste that again. I repent. I'm not just regretting it. I don't just feel bad because I I got caught. No, I admitted. I confessed it. That's where many of you find yourself tonight, waiting to get caught one more night. One more night. I mean, no one's ever seen this. My friends don't know it's possible. They think I'm this, I'm really that. One more night. I mean, come on, it can't be that bad. Like, surely I'm not going to get caught tonight. Yeah, the problem is God sees it all. He sees it all. He sees the motives of our heart. He knew David was an adulterer in his heart before he even committed the sin. And so for those of you that have come in this room and thinking, no, 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 Mark, okay, fair enough, this is a great teaching, but one more night, one more day, that's all I need. You don't know how good it tastes. You don't know what lust tastes like. Like, how am I ever going to repent of it? How am I ever going to get rid of it? How can I turn away from my financial struggle or my relational tension? Mark, it feels better in the moments just to regret it because I shed a few tears, I feel God's pat on my back, and I still feel accepted. My friends, then you have not repented. You would think that God in the moments of repentance like my mom, as you hold that sin before him and say, God, I'm confessing what you already know to be true. 
You would think in that moment, because we're deserving, that God would take you by your neck and say, what are you doing? Instead, because of His Son, Jesus, He loves and accepts and forgives your sin. And just like He told the woman, go and sin no more. Well, what, what about when we do? If you don't take advantage of grace, the Scripture says, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We don't take advantage of grace, my friends, but we live in the empowerment of the Spirit, causing us to turn from this to something that's much better. Next slide. So here's what happens. You, uh, tens of times, if not hundreds, go through this process every day. When I was uh, in second grade, I got to the fruition of sin, and that was enough. I couldn't live with myself anymore. And so, I repented. And I can honestly say, I have never stole any more gum. You know what I'm saying? But that's not enough for most of you. Going against God is not enough for most of you. That's why many of you, it takes the absolute pit of despair. Finally getting found out. Finally so low. Deepened in your suicidal thoughts, your wretchedness. Finally that sin that you've been struggling with, people find out. And it's at the cost of the fruition of the sin that you have enough gumption to regret it. This pattern can end like it just did for me in Germany. When you weigh the cost and you start seeing the Jody Reeds, the worthless minivans, all of the things in our life that we've escalated for really what they are, nothing in comparison to the love of God. Let's stand together. So I get to share the same message that John the Baptist did. I have the privilege and honor of communicating the same words that Jesus did. I have the awesome chance to be able to look uh, before you and stand before you as someone who deeply loves you and communicate the same thing that Peter did in Acts 3. And that is this, repent now for the kingdom of God is at hand. You want to live one more day in regret? You will regret that decision. You want to live one more day where all you do is feel bad? You say, I wish I wouldn't have done that, my friends. You're going to spend your life waiting for the truth to be buoyant. But because of what Christ has done, we have this amazing chance to confess our sin to God and put it before Him just like David did. Judas didn't repent, he committed suicide. The Israelites didn't repent, they only regretted, and their situation got worse. Esau only regretted, and he shed tears of shame. But David, in Psalm 51, says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's not someone who's just regretting it. 
That's not language of disingenuine. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Come on. You want to be washed tonight? You want to be cleansed tonight? You want the shame to go away? You want the habitual pattern to stop? You want to stop living in your regret and finally turn from it? Then I'm telling you, listen, there is hope for you in Christ. By what He has done in leaving and sending us His Spirit and His sacrifice, we can literally turn from all of this worthlessness and rest in His worthiness. So I get to share the exact same thing that John the Baptist said right before Jesus was baptized. Repent now, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's in the hand for you tonight? What do you need to say here, God? I'm tired of just feeling bad about it and giving you empty promises, saying I won't do it anymore. God, please, wash me white as snow and give me a repentant heart. Regret gets you nowhere. Repentance, the heart of God. Let's pray together. We're fearful, scared, lost in our identity, God. But I believe, I believe that your grace is sufficient. And I pray right now for your grace to abound in this room. I pray against condemnation. I pray against people feeling pushed in the pit. Instead, I pray, God, that you'll show us the light. The light of your light. You walked out of the tomb. God, please help us see that tonight. God, birth the hope in us that we don't have to be buried in the grave of our sin. That that sin was crucified on the cross. God, give us that hope tonight. Help us believe that repentance is possible and that your grace and love abound. God, thank you for hating our sin enough to send your son Jesus to take on the punishment that we could know your love. Wash us, God.